Putin isn't the only monster in Ukraine. A series on the This Is South Africa podcast channel. I'm Mike Hampton. Episode 5. From Nazi History to Civil War. Are there Nazis in Ukraine? Is the USA supporting them? Faina Savankova is a 13-year-old writer living in the Donbass. She is known via limited media for being targeted by the infamous Ukrainian website Mirovirits. I probably pronounced that wrong. In English, it is known as Peacekeeper. It's allegedly an operation by the SBU, which is the Secret Service of Ukraine. The personal details of Faina and her family were published, labelling her as an enemy of Ukraine, effectively intimidating a child. Journalists who entered the Donbass, trying to report the other side, were listed too. Whereas Henry Kissinger and the presidents of Hungary and Croatia can scoff at their addition, the threat is visceral to Ukrainians as some of them have been assassinated. Savinkova complained to the United Nations. Russia has two, claiming 327 miners have been listed. I introduced Savinkova not for her bravery but for her definition of Nazism. In an interview she was asked, Americans don't believe that there are Nazis in Ukraine. What would you say to them? She replied, Unfortunately, in America, not many people know much about what happened in our country. Even the fact that we had a war going on. Americans only learned about it in 2022, when the Russian operation in Ukraine began. The American media said that evil Putin attacked poor Ukraine. Of course, many believed it. True, the media forgot to mention that Ukraine has been killing civilians in Donbass for eight years. I don't know what Nazism means to Americans. To me, it's lack of freedom, prohibition to speak your mind, the worship of Bandera and Hitler, the shelling of peaceful cities, the killing of children. That's Nazism. But I probably suggest that these people come to Donetsk and Makayevka and live there under the bombardment. Conspiracy theorists give journalists and activists a bad reputation. Uncovering conspiracies and propaganda is truth-seeking men to protect our lives. Unfortunately, that gets muddy when journalists are sometimes publicists and the reaction to them sometimes involves conspiracy theorists. Before we get into the history of extremism in Ukraine, I want readers to compare the current news climate to the past, taking note that yesterday's villains can be marketed as today's heroes. And the shitstorm that is this war is suddenly and babyishly reduced to good versus evil. Those who question the suddenly sainted can be labelled as conspiracy theorists, a dismissal that works well for those suffering from cognitive dissonance. Google the following pre-invasion articles by major Western media and think tanks, or download the script wherein I provide links to these and many more supporting my opinions and the facts I share. Those articles with self-explanatory titles are CNN's Reign in Ukraine Neo-Fascists. NBC, US cozies up to Kiev government, including far-right. Zalons, is the US backing neo-Nazis in Ukraine? Huffington Post, the neo-Nazi question in Ukraine. The Nation, America's collusion with neo-Nazis. Channel 4, far-right group at heart of Ukraine protest meets US senator. And... 
how the far right took top posts in Ukraine's power vacuum. BBC, Ukraine's ultra-nationalist right sector. The Guardian's Azov fighters are Ukraine's greatest weapon and may be its greatest threat. Foreign policy, yes, there are bad guys in the Ukrainian government. And my final example is from the Atlantic Council. Ukraine's got a real problem with far-right violence, and no, RT didn't write this headline. Introducing the Nazis. They called ultra-conservatives, ultra-nationalists, the far-right and neo-Nazis. The term most used during Russia's invasion is Nazi, so I'll just use that. The general public considered the issue to be propaganda, but facts are cloudier than expedient belief. It's an awful topic. Made worse as cities become ruins and people are shot, crushed and exploded. But it's necessary because war should not be redefined into simplicities. War is only evil for the invaded and the invaders. Nazis have a glaring position in Ukraine's history. And the Euromaidan revolution in 2014 gave them clout. Since then, their power has seemed to diminish and their public policies have moderated but I find it difficult to believe that the heart of a beast can change in only eight years. However, does it matter in the fog of war? If I were under attack, would I moralize who was fighting alongside me or holding the guns protecting me? But I'm here to present facts, not philosophize. There's no need for a deep dive into Putin's motives or forced Russian journalism. Putin aims to protect Russian-speaking Ukrainians, reaffirm Russia as a superpower, and mostly damage globalization. His use of the Nazi description is a tool, irrespective of truth, because it's emotive. This chapter is not about the tool, only the truth. Whilst the West forgets history except to recast it in their favor, it's stubborn for many Europeans. Rambo-type movies may pay no attention, but Russians care about their almost 27 million comrades and family members who died in World War II. They care about the Nazis and they killed them. Contrary to appearances, Israel doesn't have a monopoly. Additionally, there are many groups interested in anti-Semitism, but Putin has failed to gain their support. Instead, they're supporting those he claims to be Nazis. It's a confusing situation. Unlike patriotic or fearful Russian media, Western media is ambiguous. It's doing its best to whitewash Ukraine's Nazi links, beating Russian propaganda with their own. But the internet history isn't easily erased, so I'll begin there before addressing the current war. Jews are buried in Ukraine. Anyone who is found will be thrust through, and anyone who is captured will fall by the sword. The infants will be dashed to pieces before their eyes, their houses will be looted, and their wives violated. That's from Isaiah 13 verses 15 to 16. Ukraine has a thousand-year history of Jews being killed on its land. An example is the 33,771 that were massacred over two days in 1941 at the Babi Yar Ravine on the outskirts of Kiev, the capital. The Germans did the shooting, which was enabled by Ukrainian collaborators. The Organization of Ukrainian Nationalists, the OUN, went on to support the SS in the slaughter of 200,000 Jews in the province of Volhynia, which currently borders Poland and Belarus. The OUN may have played a smaller role at that stage, but what they learned would be applied to ethnic cleansing of Poles 1943-1945. to 
one of the greatest World War II movies, as disturbing as 120 Days of Sodom, is Hatred. The Polish title is Volyne, and the Ukrainian is Volhynia. It was released in 2016, praised for being historically accurate, yet deliberately banned by the Ukrainian government which seeks to be part of a liberal Europe. The only Ukrainian politician that supported its release was Nadia Shevchenko, who had, not long before, been released as a Russian prisoner of war. Interestingly, she supported neither the pro-West nor pro-Putin political forces in her country. She intended running for presidency in 2019, which was when Lukashenko won. Instead, she was arrested as a terrorist, possibly victim of a secret service plot, and then released without prosecution once a political career had been shredded. It's possible that unlike Germany's admirable addressing of its past atrocities, which included many great movies, Ukraine wouldn't do so because of the far-right's power in their country. I'll return to that topic after more about the movie and that oxymoronic term ethnic cleansing. Hatred, the movie, relates the Ukrainian torture and slaughter of Jewish and Catholic Poles. That included beheading, disembowelment, dismemberment, crucifixion, gang rape, and the burning alive of mostly children, women, and old men. As described on Wiki, babies were impaled on bayonets and pitchforks or bashed against trees. An estimated 40 to 60,000 died. It was very Old Testament, very Hebrew Bible, but in reverse. I'm not tarring all Ukrainians. I emphasize that. Many were killed for trying to save their Polish friends, or for not sharing the fervent nationalism of the killers, the OUN, and its paramilitary wing, the Ukrainian Insurgent Army. Any argument along the lines that World War II was a long time ago and that times have changed is diluted in relation to Ukraine because it has never stood on its own feet. Failed states fail to escape their history. My South Africa is the same. Corruption and assassination is in our DNA. The OUN and the CIA From 1944, the leadership of OUN, which included Stepan Bandera and Yaroslav Stetsko, had a relationship with British, German and US intelligence forces. I'm going to profusely extract from a brilliant article by Evan Reif that appeared in Covert Action magazine. It's called How Monsters Who Had Beaten Jews to Death with Hammers in 1944 became America's favorite freedom fighters in 1945, with a little help from their friends at the CIA. I recommend that you read it in full, but how's the part I most want to tell you about? Spirited away to Munich, their Western patrons provided them luxury apartments and SS bodyguards. In the immediate aftermath of Nazi Germany's defeat, many of OUN soldiers worked as hitmen in the vast network of displaced persons camps under the command of MI6. It was the British and Germans who were the primary patrons of the old OUN at this moment. Notorious Nazi spymaster Reinhard Gellin was not just the hand of Stetsko and Bandera, but also their friend. They met while the OUN was fighting for the Nazis and remained friends for the rest of their lives. The CIA covertly provided arms, training and support for operations within the USSR, itself where many nationalist forces continued to fight against the Red Army as partisans. The nationalist forces in Ukraine were an amalgamation of SS remnants. OUN, UPA forces, criminals 
and various other collaborator militias. Confined mostly to the forests of western Ukraine, they operated as bandits, raiding collective farms, ambushing soldiers and assassinating Soviet officials. Jews and CPSU members were particularly coveted targets. Fighting continued until the mid-1950s, with the last stragglers killed or arrested in 1960. The death toll for these operations is unclear, with estimates ranging from 20 to 50,000. The vast majority of these were civilians, often killed with axes and hammers, which was the OUN's trademark. The OUN claims that it was NKVD infiltrators in OUN uniforms who killed the civilians. Declassified KGB documents, however, have proven that was not the case. End quote. The KGB eventually assassinated Bandera. Stetsko, who also believed in the ethnic cleansing of Jews and Russians from Ukraine, would have a much longer relationship with the CIA. He even met President Reagan and then Vice President George W. Bush. After Stetsko died in 1986, his wife, Slava Stetsko, continued in his footsteps, eventually starting the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists, the CUN, which won seats in the Ukrainian government. The modern far-right The media would have us believe that Putin is a liar about Nazis because President Zelensky is a Jew. But Zelensky's Jewishness was doubted when he took office and only became a feature when Russia invaded. Zelensky is a handicapped president who made promises he couldn't keep because Ukraine is cavernously corrupt and the far right, although minority, is more powerful than him. It's well documented that the far right has gained popularity the past decade in Europe and the US. Europe's most racist and xenophobic countries are in its eastern and southeastern regions. It has a special place in Ukraine's politics and on the eastern battlefront with Russia. Quoting from the wiki page for OUN, a number of contemporary far-right Ukrainian political organizations claim to be inheritors of the OUN's political traditions, including Svoboda, Right Sector, the Ukrainian National Assembly, Ukrainian National Self-Defense, and the Congress of Ukrainian Nationalists. Directed in 2007, the Bandera Monument is a controversial feature in Ukraine's capital. President Zelensky won't denounce Bandera, in an interview, he skirted the issue. He said, There are indisputable heroes. Stepan Bandera is a hero for a certain part of Ukrainians, and this is a normal and cool thing. He was one of those who defended the freedom of Ukraine. But I think that when we name so many streets, bridges by the same name, this is not quite right. In 2010, Ukraine's President Viktor Yushchenko posthumously awarded Stepan Bandera the title of Hero of Ukraine. After an international outcry, the award was annulled the following year on the technicality of Bandera having been born in Hungary. However, the right wing still considers Bandera to be a hero, and foreign pressure isn't the same as local choice. Andrei Melnik, Ukraine's ambassador to Germany, 2014-2022, is an admirer of Bandera. A video interview with Melnik was a mini PR disaster for Ukraine. In 2019, Spanish soccer fans called Roman Zulzulia, a Ukrainian forward, a Nazi. Zulzulia had, in a photo, compared his likeness to Bandera and shown social media support for right-wings Azov Battalion and the White Boys. 
President Zelensky defended Zorzulia, calling him a true patriot. The same year, the few surviving OUN soldiers were granted the status of veterans, which arrived with state benefits. The main petitioner was the Veterans Movement of Ukraine, an organization co-founded by the Azov Battalion. Who is Azov? I'm getting to that. But first we need to understand the civil war in the Donbass, which began in 2014, has never ended, and has led to the current invasion by Russia. Ukraine and Russia share a long and turbulent history. The Orange Revolution of 2004-2005 saw the defeat of the pro-Russian candidate Viktor Yanukovych. He in turn won the next election in 2010, only to be driven from power in the Euromaidan Revolution of 2014. That began after he refused to sign a closer cooperation agreement with the EU. He fled to Russia, which refused to recognize the new Ukrainian government. To understand what caused and happened during Maiden, you must watch two polar opposite documentaries, excellent in their own right. The first, Winter on Fire, Ukraine's Fight for Freedom, 2015, is in my top 10, and I've watched thousands. It was nominated for an Oscar and distributed by Netflix. Its major fault is not showing how Ukrainian citizens were manipulated into revolution, serving corruption against another corruption rather than for themselves. That's argument for propaganda, but it is overshadowed by the emotional, on-the-ground footage showing extraordinary bravery of the same citizens. I fell in love with them. Their determination propelled my interest in their country. Its counterpart, Ukraine on Fire, was released the following year. With some protesters labelled as Nazis, it was unsurprisingly less distributed. Nevertheless, with Oliver Stone as the narrator and interviewer, it's an underground cornerstone. It clearly proves manipulation and includes footage of US politicians addressing the maiden crowd. The media brainwashed the West into thinking that was normal, but it wasn't remotely. Just imagine if Russian politicians had stood with the American crowd that attacked the capital in 2021. Then consider how many US and European politicians have been visiting Ukraine during the current war. It's not fucking normal. Sometimes all it takes is one good whataboutism for perspective and fairness to change bias. Ukraine on Fire explains the role of foreign funding in Maiden and their likely false flag neo-Nazi operation that turned a peaceful protest into a revolution. Not all locals were duped. Journalists noted the presence of the Nazis, particularly the homophobic, anti-Semitic, right-sector men of Dimitro Yurosh, who had been trained by NATO earlier that year. It was clear to all when several men considered to be Nazis were elected to the Ukrainian government. This included Yurosh, as well as Andrei Belitsky and Oleg Potrenko, former leaders of the Ozov Brigade. Pronouncing Ukrainian names is beyond my South Africanness, so I beg your forgiveness for those that I get wrong. Yorosh was prophetic when interviewed by Newsweek, who cited him as a major reason for Euromaidan's success. He said, I am sure that if Russians bomb Kiev, and we believe there is a 50-50 chance that will happen, NATO will not come to fight for Ukraine. Europe has betrayed Ukraine many times. We are not counting on them. We can only count on our own forces and our own ingenuity. A big reason for Zelensky's election as president in 2019 
was because he promised to be a peacemaker. Azov allegedly created the No Capitulation Movement and recorded his face-to-face humiliation on the front line of the Civil War. Zelensky was threatened and slandered by parliamentarians and on social media. Zelensky swapped his promise for a U-turn. In 2021, Yarosh was appointed by Zelensky as advisor to Valery Zeluzny, commander-in-chief of the Ukrainian Armed Forces. Yarosh reorganized the Nazi Tard forces and launched a large attack on the Donbass in early 2022. Few media give credit to that battle and the unending conflict being a major reason why Putin invaded earlier that year. Nor that Putin was familiar with Yarosh, who was accused of organizing Islamist and European radicals into units fighting the Jihad in Chechnya against Russia. Ultranationalism, supported by Nazi groups, is partly responsible for the Russian occupation of Crimea, the civil war that began in 2014, and the current Russian-Ukrainian war. After the Maidan, Madan revolution, the new Ukrainian government began eradicating minority language rights, in effect, mostly Russian language rights. That despite a 2012 poll finding that 29% of Ukrainians identified Russian as the main language, and 20% identified both Russian and Ukrainian as their native languages. Millions were affected, but there was no outrage nor action from the West. But Putin responded, occupying Crimea within days, and two weeks later, incorporating it into Russia. Former U.S. Senator Bill Bradley stated that, The U.S. actions in Kosovo, carving out an independent state based on ethnicity from within a sovereign nation, provided the precedent for Russia to carve Crimea out of Ukraine. The following month in the Russian-speaking eastern Ukraine region of Donbass, Donetsk and Luhansk announced that they would be holding referendums to determine their future. Preceding polls found that most wanted to be a federal state of Ukraine and not independent. But right-wing violence against Russian-speaking people in Odessa and Mariupol overwhelmingly moved them towards separation. The Donetsk People's Republic and the Luhansk People's Republic declared independence to protect their language and as objection to Nazis and government. A war of insurgency began and then battle lines were drawn. It became a civil war. Suspiciously, the West wasn't interested in peace. It never enforced the Minsk 1 and 2 treaties that were signed in 2014 and 2015. Those treaties were designed to protect the autonomy of Russian-speaking dissidents in eastern Ukraine. Ukraine was allowed to dishonor them. In 2017, new Ukrainian laws banned books imported from Russia, the majority of the market, and made Ukrainian a 75% quota for television content. Ukrainian became the main language for university study, notably a few European languages, but not Russian, were made exceptions for a few subjects. The Washington Times described the worsening situation. Since 2017, new laws on education and the state language severely restrict ethnic minorities in using and studying in their native language. As of July 1, 2021, a new law limits the definition of indigenous minorities. The law not only contravenes common sense, but is also highly discriminatory. While certain indigenous peoples are recognized, The Bulgarians, Hungarians, Romanians and Poles, and of course the Russians, are not recognized, and nor are their language rights. 
The current draft law on national communities, too, is built upon vague concepts that limit rather than protect existing rights. Instead of minorities, it talks about communities, an apparent bid to evade Ukraine's existing commitments to internationally recognized minority rights instruments. Jacques Baud, a former policy chief for UN peace operations, likened Ukraine's actions to the Swiss deciding that Italian and French were no longer official languages. He's backed by a 2018 Atlantic Council article stating that whilst 68% of Ukrainians consider Ukrainian their mother language, only 50% speak it at home and only 39% use it at work, and that television content is mostly in Russian. One week before, Putin recognized the breakaway republics. Russian separatists had controlled one-third of the Donbass. By June 2022, most was captured. That's the awful consequence of Donbass's human rights and its 15,000 civil war dead being ignored. It's this eight-year-old conflict in the Donbass that Putin alleges Nazi-like treatment of Russian-speaking Ukrainians. More than the others, he blames the Azov Battalion, which cannot be detailed before introducing Andrei Bedletsky. I will do that in the next episode. Nazis are convenient. I'm Mike Hampton. This is the end of episode 5 of the series Putin Isn't the Only Monster in Ukraine on the This is South Africa podcast channel. A transcript is available for download and includes links to sources referenced.